welcome to Deep Focus. This is Quaid with my co-host Nick. How you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Nice. And today we're going to be talking about Ready or Not, which is sort of a horror comedy that came out in 2019. Mm-hmm. We talked about this uh, because it was on one of my, it was ranked I think as like fourth or maybe fifth on my best of 2019 list. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Somewhere around there. Anyways, it caught my eye because I think of those old great genre filmmakers like George A. Romero and uh, John Carpenter, you know, people love them. And I think of things like John Carpenter's They Live, you know, about, you know, uh, the media control and advertising control of society where you put on those glasses and all of a sudden everything's decoded, you know. Right. And I think this is another film that sort of exemplifies uh, the ability to sort of have a message have a point within something that's so genre such a uh, a genre film that its primary purpose is to entertain and let the audience have fun and so on but you can still have something to say and you don't see that all the time frankly a lot of times you know every film does make an attempt at a message but not something so complex as like they live or you know it's like most of the time in these sort of genre films it's like you know uh friendship will never die you know which is still a great message but they they sort of just tack it on they don't take it seriously yeah it's kind of like a i feel like it's kind of like kids films uh you know like Mm -hmm. uh where like yeah i mean i don't know why i feel like genre films are kind of like children's films for adults yeah you know where the message is usually going to be something a little more simple um and you're kind of there to like enjoy the ride but uh you know yeah it's just sort of tacked on as sort of like a this is something you have to do when you're filmmaking you know right it's right. more about you know hitting those genre notes almost like a b-movie in the sense where if you satisfy certain conventions then the audience will forgive a lack of quality in the other areas that don't matter well in, yeah. in a way genre films are similar but it's like as long as you hit our genre conventions then we don't really care about you know whether or not this is a piece of art or a grand story with an actual message, you know, following in the tradition. Right. So I think uh, genre films actually remind me of uh, like musicians sort of, okay. <laughs> you know, how they kind of like, uh, you know, they, they have like a structure to how they do things, but uh, it's more, more about like the feel of what they're doing um, yeah. than uh, any sort of a uh, deep thought that's put into it. That's definitely true. Um, not to say there aren't musicians that apply a lot of deep thought because, you know, there are, but yeah, um, it's the same thing with what we're saying here with how there's some genre filmmakers that end up doing it, you know, they end up right, right. treating it uh, with respect, you know, and I think that's a lot, frankly, but you also definitely see in genre films uh, the opposite exemplified more often than if you're just sort of watching a genre, uh, I mean, like a drama or an yeah. art film or an independent film, you know, if you're watching yeah. something a horror movie made for $10 million or so, the likelihood that you're going to get a message just sort of tacked onto it is pretty high. Um, and the same yeah. with like a comedy that's made for cheap and like a cheap action movie too. Or rom-com, know? right? I, th- I think uh, yeah. I think like oh, the big, uh, no, I shouldn't say problem, but the big reason that a lot of these films are made are to turn a quick profit, yeah. right? Because they're, essentially what producers have found is, is that these genre films and the, the reason that they become genre films is because so many of them get pumped out. Right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the, the whole idea behind it is that, you know, people like this type of movie, 
uh, it can be made for cheap. So, uh, you know, you put $10 million into it, you make $150 million. Exactly. Right. It's a kind of movie where you don't need actual big name actors. Right. And therefore, right. the price plummets. <laughs> you don't need yeah. a shit ton of CG either, you know. Um, and that's definitely like, that's definitely in my mind. I keep thinking, you know, the first feature film I make, you know, it should be like some hybrid of horror, frankly, because you are able to get money to make those and you're almost always able to get your money back if it's cheap, you know, even if you're just going like straight to DVD, you know, I would definitely like to see a Quaid Wooten, uh, horror film. <laughs> yeah. It's coming, man. It's coming. Sweet. Also the, you know, it, it fits with my mindset, the, the sort of, uh, highly moralistic mindset. Yeah. And um, not, not to go into, go into it too much, but we, we talked about potentially doing something together that could, yeah. uh, maybe, get into the horror genre a little bit yeah but. it would definitely be a hybrid form yeah yeah we worked on but. that for a little while we had an outline we had a few few uh what 10 pages of script about <laughs> yeah and then we scrapped it but yeah yeah anyways i think at this point we'll just give our obligatory uh spoiler warning slash uh you may not know what's going on warning yeah. um if you're anything like i was you won't really care about not having seen the film for either spoilers or uh, plot reasons or understanding us talking, but you're probably not me and you're probably going to care. So <laughs> go ahead and watch ready or not made in uh, 2019. You can look it up. I believe it's free on HBO as of right now. So it's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. And yeah, the whole, the whole idea is that we want to do analysis and not reviews. So yeah. Um, we like to talk with you about these things, not tell you to go see them or not. Yeah, um, exactly. If we're talking about them, you know, we want you to go see it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a rare day in hell that we make a an episode about a movie we don't like. And that's only if that happens, you know that uh, it was a schedule issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so ready or not, I think we'll just sort of start off with some of the people involved and we can dive in. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So interesting fact is we have a duo team directing. We have Matt Bettinelli Olpin and Tyler Gillette. And so, these guys are horror directors, and I don't know if you remember the the sort of VHS horror movie that was like an assorted uh, short films. Oh yeah, yeah. And they were also a part of that was 2012, so a long time ago. And they were also a part of Southbound. I guess they made this movie called Southbound as a horror movie. I haven't seen it. Hmm. And Devil's Due. Those are respectively uh, 2015 and 2014. But an interesting fact about these guys is they're going to be doing Scream 5. So there's a new... Huh. That's yeah, cool. So they'll be reviving a horror franchise. I think these guys did pretty good work, but this is definitely the first thing of theirs I've seen other than whatever film they did in VHS, you know? Right. Um, how do you feel about duo directors, by the way? It's interesting. You know, I really haven't seen a pair blow me away other than the Coen brothers, you know? like Yeah, I feel like... I feel like when they're brothers it were, or siblings, it works, right? Like uh, the Wachowskis. The Saldifi brothers as well um, in the Wachowskis. The Saldifi, uh, Saldifi, if I'm saying that right, did that Uncut Gems movie. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. What, what, who are the two brothers. that made um, Winter Soldier? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. The Avengers guys. Yeah, yeah. The, it's like, uh, no, I can't say it. Uh. Anyways, I'll look it up. But there's also those guys that did, I think, uh, The Book of Eli. I think they're brothers. Okay. I'm not sure. Um, oh, the Russo brothers. Yeah, the Russo brothers. Yeah, they're great. Uh, they were writers on Community, actually, before. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big step up. Yeah. 
Interesting. But, yeah, I, I would agree with you. You definitely see it work out a lot more when they're siblings. Um, I think it's I wonder because, how that even happens well, when I think you it's become such they, a good like, friend with someone. They spend so much of their childhood together that they have like they have similar subconsciouses, you know. Yeah. Um, but I feel like uh, actually Nolan and his brother are similar in that way. That's true. Um, but they, they don't they don't do a direct, but you know. Yeah, it helped uh, write Jonathan right. Nolan, right? Yeah. But uh, who didn't he do uh, Westworld? He is. Yeah, he's in charge of Westworld. That's cool. Which I have uh, not seen all of the first season yet, so I don't know if I'm I'll continue at watching. At the end of the first season. Yeah. So, I've been so highly warned not to uh, go beyond the first season, but I sort of want to rewatch the first season and watch everything. So uh, I watched like the first couple episodes of the second season, I guess. Yeah. And I, I wasn't like super into it. And I didn't know if that was because it had been a while since I'd seen the first one or if, like the quality dropped significantly. But people say it's uh, the quality. Okay. Yeah. But anyways, we should probably do an episode about that. That could be good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but so anyway, these, these guys, guys, duo directors, not brothers. Uh, I wonder. It seems like they've worked on like all these movies together, though. Yeah, every single thing they've done, they've done together, except for looks like this guy might have like a short film or something by himself. But, okay. Yeah, I, I feel like I don't know. I watched a little interview with them. Uh, it seems like they're just having fun, you know. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, looks like they like to bounce a lot of stuff off each other and. I don't know. I, I've never really had anything against duo directors, but I, I feel like a lot of the times when I watch films that have duo directors that aren't good friends or siblings, it's just, uh, I don't know. I feel like the movie ends up being like a halfway ground, you know, instead of, instead of one vision that's uh, exemplified on screen. That's true. You know, there's uh, you know, it has the, uh, the air of compromise about it you know right right um which this is actually something that i always bring up with uh anime and i think the reason why anime can do so much really fun stuff uh especially uh you know with plot and just how they deal with or even style is because uh there's i think it's literally just because there's less people working on it yeah uh there's less room for the vision as opposed to a Pixar movie, which is almost always co-directed and then has, you know, a million people. Right, right, <laughs> right. Which, um, you know, not to hark on those, but. Yeah, they made uh, some good ones, but uh, not not so much recently, in my opinion. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. I would uh, agree. <laughs> you know, when you hear about uh, the Coen brothers, you know, there's people tell stories about them editing because they edit their own movies under yeah. a different name. And uh, it's like they don't even speak to each other in many cases. They're just literally like uh, passing the mouse back and forth. Or like I think they may even edit on film. They're literally just passing the shots back and forth. Like one guy's just making the selection <laughs> of the correct that's shot. Great. And the other he passes it off. And yeah, and that's, that's what I mean. Where it in. When it's like when, you, when they're siblings and like they've lived their whole childhood together. And like there's mm-hmm. no questioning each other's taste at that point. Yeah. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it really does become something that's like second nature. And um, when you watch things like uh, any Coen brother film uh, or like, uh, you know, the matrix or something like that, you mm-hmm. know, uh, even, even winter soldier. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can tell that these guys just really, really, really um, understand each other, you know? Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, I wouldn't say that I really felt that that way about this film too much. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know? I don't think this is, you know, uh, an, an amazing film. I think it's like a very good film, a very, very good film. You know, <laughs> that's yeah. what I would put it at. Um, definitely does what it sets out to do. Mm-hmm. Anyways, one thing I would like to point out, yeah, one element of the film I did think was very good was the cinematography. Okay. I don't know what you thought. Uh, and I can't, these guys always have horrible last names, but it's Brett Jut Kwizik <laughs> Some like what? Polish last name or something. Um, Jutkowitz? Yeah, that might be it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did this independent film as well that I think uh, it came out the same year, Let Them Follow. I didn't watch it, but I saw a bunch of trailers for it mm. uh, about a sort of like a Deep South pastor that uses sort of like snakes you know oh, okay. in terms in his uh so that could be interesting um but yeah i would say you know pretty cool job on the cinematography just in terms of i really like the lighting um, oh yeah and the color and that and uh, it got it it got it done so yeah that that was actually a cool part um i wasn't huge on the framing or anything it's basic yeah but yeah it's very standard but uh, there were there were a couple of whip pans and stuff that were pretty funny, but um, mm-hmm. but yeah, the the color and just the general um, lighting palette or the color palette and the light general lighting is was very uh, consistent, and nice to look at, and actually had this almost old timey feel. Yeah, um, really like the match the location, this, this right. old mansion, you know. Right, right. It's very cool. Um, but yeah, anyways. Uh, what about the music? What do you think about that? Did it blow you away? No, I, I thought the... So, I don't know. I thought the music here was actually very... Uh, like, it sounded like they hired just, like, the guy that does... I don't know. Guess it kind of sounded like a superhero movie. Um, okay. You're getting close. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like it, it sounded like someone that they just kind of hired to like blast out, uh, you know. It, yeah, it's, he's definitely a hired gun. Uh-oh. Yeah, it's Brian yeah. Taylor, and uh, oh, okay, he did yeah. Avengers: Age of Ultron, Iron Man three, Thor: The Dark World. He's done shit tons of blockbusters, like yeah, tons which is of the funny, Fast and Furious movies. Uh, I actually know see, a bit about movies. the uh, Age of Ultron score, and I, I think that that has one of the best uh, songs in it uh, of all the Avengers films and it really uses that avenger theme avengers theme from the first one and builds on it and turns it into something awesome but instead of uh having the composer brian tyler do it they uh outsourced that to danny elfman who had wrote written the uh original uh spider-man trilogy theme nice right (laughs) that's like amazing right yeah um danny elfman also did uh what uh edward scissorhands and uh, nightmare before christmas you know, he, he's okay. a really, really good composer. Yeah. Um, all of those films have just excellent scores. And uh, he he actually wrote... I'm not sure if he actually wrote the Avengers theme, but he I think he wrote the best composed song that used the Avengers theme, uh, which nice. is from Age of Ultron. But, Very cool. So not Brian Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, Brian Taylor is just like this... Uh, I don't know. Again, he's not a bad composer, but... Um, 
No, he gets the job done. That's his entire thing, right? Right, right. Um, you're not going to yeah, think this is bad, <laughs> but you're not going to like if you pick out a song, it's going to end up not being his. <laughs> yeah, well, and and that's kind of how I felt listening to this is that the score wasn't really nuanced in any way, and it was uh, very literal to what was happening on screen. Not yeah, really and if you're emotion, not listening for it, you would almost not even like notice it, frankly. You know, right, right. Um, but. Yeah, no, uh, not to shit on Brian Tyler. I think he does he does good work, but um, yeah, yeah th- I, I think respect. there's there's like an element of the uh, kind of like an emotional through line for the music not really being there. Sure, um, it was very literal, kind of speaking to the action and what was literally yeah, going just on, on, enhancing screen. the scenes. Yeah, right. I get um, that. Invisible music, right? That's yeah. Um, well, actually, may I say though, one thing that I really, really loved in this film was uh, the costume design. Yeah, that um, was very cool. Yeah, um, and and just set design too. Actually, I think the just general production team was very, very good. What yeah. I would say about that is both of those people are very new. I think this is the first time, uh, in terms of production design, Andrew uh, Stern. This seems to be his first movie. Really? And uh, the costumes, this is the third movie, or maybe the second feature film of uh, the person who did the costumes. So, very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, props Her to them. I really uh, hope they go far, which I feel like they're probably going to. Yeah. Um, very but, cool uh, looking uh, atmosphere and environment. And the invocative in terms of what the characters are wearing. Right. One thing um, I would also want to point out is mm-hmm. uh, we got uh, James Vanderbilt. And Brad Fisher uh, as producers on this. And okay. they produce Zodiac, which is Ooh, a nice. great venture film. Yeah. But they also have been doing some cool. Uh, they did the Suspiria remake two years ago. And uh, yeah, well, I I haven't either, but I hear it's great. And Brad Fisher did the Black Swan, you know. Oh, cool. So some really cool uh, producing talent behind this. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so I don't know. I think uh I think like on the surface, I feel like this movie was I don't really feel like there are a lot of mistakes in this film, you know. No. Um it feels very polished, uh but it also feels like it to me it felt like you know, it didn't rise to the occasion where I, I did enjoy the message and such like that, but um I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think they necessarily proved it. Exactly right. You it's know? like <laughs> it's not that what you just said. It's there's no mistakes, but it's like you could have. Like, is there a way to make it better? Almost, you know. That's can, all you can. Can think I actually about. point out another horror comedy that I think did rise to the occasion? Um, have you yeah, seen uh, what was it? Cabin in the Woods. I have not the Joss Whedon one. I need to. It's it's so crazy, man. Uh, like, we should maybe do an episode on that one at some point. But I'd be down. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it, it, that one was a brilliant one where like I would say that it, it kind of followed the same vein of not doing anything too special in terms of like cinematography or anything. But yeah. it did a lot that was special in terms of the uh, the writing and the plot. Right. Okay. Um, where it really followed the whole like kind of Scooby-Doo trope uh, at the beginning, but then totally just takes a wild ass turn. Um. But yeah, no, and it also kind of has the same uh, feel where it's it's like this fun horror movie, but it also has this underlying 
uh, message, right? Um, but yeah, no, do you want to, you, you said before we started this, that you wanted to maybe talk about the, uh, what your thought of the message or what your thought for the message of this film was. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to do that. Um, my big idea about the message is it would be easy. I remember walking out of the theater cause I did see this in theaters before we rewatched it. Cool. But I remember walking out of the theater and I sat in the car next to someone, uh, a friend I'd watched it with and he went, uh, well, I went, man, I really liked the message of that movie. He looked at me and he's like, what are you talking about? This movie is all <laughs> the, the entire point of this movie is like anti-family, anti-tradition. You should fucking hate it. And I was like, well, I think it, I see what you're saying, but I think that's a very superficial uh, level yeah. of the reading of the film. It's attacking like a, like a certain class of family and therefore it's attacking, you know, that type of family and that yeah, type kind of, of like the, uh, the privileged and entitled yeah, the Blue Bloods. Yeah. I mean, they say it at the very beginning of the film. I mean, they make a big deal that this is a dynasty or what do they call it? A dominion. Right. And, uh, you know, of a, a game board family, essentially, or a gaming dynasty. Right. And uh, and that they're Blue Bloods. And, you know, Blue Blood in America means sort of the Eastern Coastal elite, the New, the new England elite, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, original ruling class of America. Yeah, like old money. Exactly. Yeah. Old American money. And, uh, and I was like, this is a film, uh, critiquing them. It's specifically pointed at them and saying that they're really bad and they're fucked up and they're evil, you know? And yeah. I, I really think that's the message of the movie is essentially is a giant critique of America's modern ruling class, you know, the blue bloods, the people, the cosmopolitan cosmopolitans that live on the sure. East Coast. I also think that at the same time though, it doesn't really do anything to, um, explain why they're bad. You yeah. know, they kind of just tag tag the whole like fantasy element on them. You well, know? I think it's I think it's a or the fairy I think tale, that's what it say. is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's what it's getting at. I mean, it's similar to you know Kubrick. You know, uh, with his last film, I I'm uh, uh, eyes wide shut. You know, like yeah. You know, other than them doing heinous things, it's not you know, you know that's the thing that's used to critique them. Well, I think uh, in Eyes not, Wide Shut there was more of a. Uh, like closed offness. Um, sure. You know, it, it wasn't was, as it was more uh, about the being bloody. on the outside. Sure. You know, um, where she was very much pulled into the fold. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, the, the idea of this movie is the elite has sold their soul to the devil essentially. And, right. uh, and they're, they're irredeemable. And, <laughs> you know, and uh, it, the interesting thing is like, I, I was talking to Nick a little before we started recording. I was like, I almost feel like, you know, if there is a message, it's that it's just sort of a general critique that America's ruling class is incredibly fucked up. Uh, but how it ends, you know, uh, well, to set it up, you know, they have this game and Samara Weaving plays the bride in this. And then there's also uh, Mark O'Brien who plays the groom. And their tradition is after you get married and Samara Weaving has no family. So it's literally just his family there. Uh, you have to play a game on your wedding night and that's tradition. And they have this cube that pulls a card out with a random game on it. And you have to play the game. And then at that point, you're family. But mm -hmm. there's the thing is, if you pull hide and seek, what hide and seek actually means is um, that they have to try to hunt you down and kill you and uh, sacrifice you to Satan. Uh, before dawn the next day or they all die you know satan kills them 
And if you don't play, there's a curse on the family where you'll die the next day if you're of the bloodline of the family and refuse to play. So this is the entire thing. And they have this whole, this great monologue about, you know, their great, great, great grandfather that essentially made this Faustian deal with the devil. You know, he sold his soul to the devil for success and riches. And that's how their family is where they are now. And that's why they remain successful. Right. And the the, the most like symbolic take, take you could take of that is just that like everything becomes about money. You know, everything yeah. becomes about status and greed and, you know, like even something like a wedding, you know, all all is about status to these people. Exactly. You know? And yeah, I, I feel like that's but I don't know, I, like I kind of felt like there was a lot that they could have done better within the like interpersonal relationships between the family, you know, where like everything kind of felt more superficial and gimmicky where they were like, uh kind of just giving each character their own quirks and then letting them play out and like jokes and such um, throughout the film instead of, uh, I felt like there was a big opportunity missed where they could have uh, made it more serious. (laughs) Well, no, not serious, but like they could have taken these characters and had them represent ideas of, uh, instead of just making them, you know, people in the family, made them represent some of ideas. I think there was some of that in terms, at least of representing, uh, certain uh, almost archetypes of the American ruling class. You have the, you know, coked sure. out, drugged up. Uh, well, that, that's what know. I mean. It was it was more of like a simple, like yeah. archetypal thing, you know, Definitely. where I was like the, the, the missed opportunity there was to really get like hit at the soul of what makes these people the way they are. Yeah. You know, and they did they did do that with the um, the brother of the of the groom to some degree, you know, especially with the film opens up with uh, them playing this game uh, some 20, maybe 30 years beforehand. And yeah. the the older brother of uh, the groom uh, helps them find uh, this groom that's going to marry his aunt, you know, and he pulled the hide-and-seek card as well. He helps the family find them, and then they find him and kill him and sacrifice him to Satan. But, you know, his mother comes and she's like, I'm so proud of you, you know. Uh, so yeah. they, they definitely uh, built him up. And she gets built up during the film. Uh, but I agree with you. There is a little bit of a, a 2D representation of the characters. Uh, they're definitely there for jokes and to sort of just be a caricature almost of um, the the American ruling class. To some degree. Right. So, um, but yeah, they definitely lean into the magic side of it. You know, there is uh, Anton LaVey. You know, this is the guy who sold this black box who produces the card uh in this Faustian deal to their ancestor and Anton LaVey is an actual person uh he's the the recent founder of Louvain Satanism in in America right so like they're full-on Satanist and you know even get this later on where the groom wants to save the bride initially but then they lock him to a bed and he's he has you know he has no ability to try to save her and he's trying to break loose but it takes him forever and what ends up happening is he has this conversation with his mother and he's like, and this is where I feel like some people can feel like it's like anti-family. And he's like, it sure. scared me about it wasn't what we were doing, but that it felt normal. You know, when we're chanting and slitting the throats of goats, you know, on a <laughs> monthly basis, you know. Right. So I feel like, you know, that's definitely. Uh, I actually thought that was a jab at the whole like Bilderberg meetings and shit. Oh, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> and you know, and they even have the father. He's like, uh, yeah. when they're like discussing whether or not the curse is really real, because they sort of believe the curse is real, but they're not sort of sure. They're not right. completely they're, convinced. Like, skeptical. Yeah, yeah, but they've killed enough people. They might as well keep doing it because just in case. <laughs> they're like, uh, right. the father's like, remember, you know, so and so rich family we knew. The paper said they died in a fire, but we know what actually happened. You know, which is this right. idea that they're all doing it. Right, you know, right. and, and in the age of. Uh, you know, Epstein and that, that weird sex cult that got found out in Hollywood. What was it like NXVIM or something? Yeah. Something you like know, that. it's like, yeah, there's, there's a good chunk of these people doing that. <laughs> so it's really yeah. weird. Um, but yeah, I really liked at the end, the double bluff at the very end. I, yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah. That, I like, thought that was the funniest part actually. When, yeah. That moment when they, they think that it's not true. Yeah. But they fail to kill her on time and then they're not blowing up. Yeah, yeah, and they just have that moment where they have to kind of like deal with what they've done. <laughs> yeah, realize what they've been doing, <laughs> and then it was real, and right. then they uh, they uh, died. Yeah, they all blew up in front of her. Uh, and also, you know, there's the turn at the end as well. Like this, this film is very anti-American ruling class. It's like, it's like has a deep-seated hatred of these people. Frankly, the only person that gets. Um, a, uh, a pass is the older brother, even though he ends up dying because he tries to save her once by giving his family members a brief bout of amnesia or, uh, you know, uh, dizziness through poisoning them. Yeah. But um, even the groom uh, betrays her and is going to literally sacrifice her right. uh, to the devil. And not only that, there's this great scene when the older brother finally decides to help her, the the bride. Uh is there's this scene where he's discussing the curse with his sister, the, you know, the sister of the family of the yeah. two brothers. And uh, he's like, who cares if it's, you know, real, if it is real, we deserve to die anyways. And the sister's like, well, not my two children, you right. know? And then they find the little, ch- you know, her, one of her, like maybe 10 year old son or something uh, laying there because the, the bride had, had punched him earlier after he had tried to shoot her, shot her through the hand. Yeah. And, and knocked him out moment. Yeah, and film. she yeah. leans down and says, "Oh, I'm so proud of you that you." And he's like, "You know, actually, they do deserve to die." You know? yeah. And, yeah, and later on, they do die. They explode the, along right. with the rest of the family. So there's definitely yeah. some vitriol. I, I think maybe another missed opportunity was uh, doing something more with his character at the end. Um, I kind of would have liked to see the two brothers clash. You know, that would have been cool. Yeah, and um, his uh his money hungry his gold digging wife uh this is very established in the film uh, ends up killing him. Yeah, yeah, which I guess that's fair. But (laughs) he has that great conversation with her too, where he's like, "You didn't even hesitate when I told you after we, you know, I don't know what he said whether or not he told her before after they got married, but you didn't even hesitate. You know, you didn't even hesitate to join a family where you might have had to get killed one night." Or uh, you might have to kill other people, you know? Right. But, yeah, I mean, so I I think, like, my whole thing with this film is that I, f- I felt like if they had gotten, like, say, James Wan to direct it, um, which he did, he did the, the new, con- or not the new one, but the, the Conjuring. Right? Okay. Um, and I think personally, I think that's one of the best horror movies ever made. Um, but he, 
I think he does the whole genre film in a really cool way where he takes uh he takes conventions that we know and then um like a musician you know plays them in a way that's interesting and new to us yeah you know and uh i think that's really interesting and i think that he with uh the conjuring in particular like he really did well in like the whole camera department and with his cinematographer which i I don't know who he was but uh that movie was beautifully shot it was very well written it was incredibly directed it like jumped on new uh conventions with uh it, it, it jumped on old conventions of horror movies and you know showed them to us in a new way and it was one of the most terrifying horror movies i've ever seen you know yeah conjuring's great yeah yeah and i felt like if this film had um, a director like that behind it. Um, same concept, same actors, same production team. Um, and, you know, in, instead of just going for, you know, cause I, I really feel like these guys are just having fun, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that, but um, it also isn't really a recipe for greatness. That's true. Right? Um, because I felt like there were a lot of, uh, wouldn't it be cool moments in this film. Um, oh yeah, big time. And, and this is one thing yeah. I want to point out is this film is not scary. It's like no, not even it's scary not. in the least. Yeah. So the the whole horror aspect is really sacrificed. It's, it's also very predictable. Comedy. You know, it like yeah. it does the old conventions in the old way that we've all seen a million times. Yeah. Right. Um, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Even to the point of like you know they'll foreshadow something by literally just showing it and then uh, having the character interact with it like ten seconds later. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, that happens like three or four times in the film, but, um, yeah, no, like I, I personally think James Wan is an amazing horror director. I, he recently did a, what what was it? Aquaman, which I think I, so. Yeah. I, I thought that was fun. Uh, I, I think, uh, the best scene in the entire film was actually like this one where they were out on a dark boat in the middle of the night. And there were all these fucking monsters coming in the thunderstorm, and you like, you know, you like you gotta felt see that them underwater moment, yeah. and yeah, and I was like, oh my god, like he's so good at this, <laughs> you know, um, he's so good at like understanding people's uh, like fear and the psychology of fear, and how yeah. to implement that into a film, and like even I would say that like that moment in Aquaman is scarier than this whole movie, which is a horror movie, yeah, you know. Um, and I sort of agree with you in many ways. I almost feel like them having fun with it in terms of uh, them not just, you know, being like, you know, this would be really cool, but also just leaning into the comedy aspect of it. I right. feel like a way to make this film greater in many ways would have been to make it more lean into the horror rather as the comedy, you know, because the comedy was a little cheap. You know, I laughed a few sure. times, but there is yeah. more jokes that I didn't laugh at that I didn't than I did. Yeah, it kind of didn't like really you, succeed as a comedy either. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I feel like you had this perfect scenario with this perfect idea of representing the American ruling class as these really inherently evil type people. Uh, and you could have really lent into that and you could have really made something really fucking horrifying. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, it was too, uh, you know, similar to what we were saying about, you know, bad duo directors. It was just like, the moderation between comedy and horror just did not work out here, you know, and it sure. can, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I like, like you look at, they lent one way. actually cabin in the woods is a great example of that, where that it, it's actually funny. Cause they, they do the horror tropes in a comedic way, you know? 
Um, yeah. Where like one of my favorite parts in that film is like, there's this guy's going out for a piss in front of his, in, in front of the cabin. Right. And there's this like zombie coming up behind him and it's like slowly coming up. Right. Um, and it's like, you have this like terrifying music and there's this, it's basically coming up next to the house. So there's these like gaps in the lighting. Yeah. Right. Um, so you'll like see it and then um, he like hears something behind him, but it like walks into the dark area while he's doing that. So he turns around and actually like looks back that way and then decides it was nothing and turns back around right as it comes back into the light. Oh, nice. It's just like, it's one of those things where they Is Cabin use... in the Woods uh, actually scary um, in many ways? I, I would say a little bit sometimes. Um, but yeah, no, I, I would say it is. I'd say it's more suspenseful than scary. Interesting. Um, but because I'm wondering, because I'm thinking about this now, this yeah. this is a real interesting idea that the horror comedy. Yeah, and I'm thinking the the people who are making these were you know we're looking at Joss Whedon, who was definitely more of a comedian than a horror guy, right? I would right. say that at least in terms of all the things he's made. No, I agree. Yeah. And we're looking at these guys. These guys are definitely more horror oriented, but however, they leaned into the comedy on this one, you know? Right. I really wonder it is because I wonder if the mind that makes a comedy can make a horror movie the proper way. You know, I'm certain, <laughs> certainly there's sure, like yeah. uh, instances, but you have to be, you have to like uh, be almost perverse to make a, you know what I mean? To make a good horror movie because you have to sure. beyond what just scares a normal person. You know, well, I think you have to scare yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, James Wan talks about this where he's like, he's terrified of his own movies. Yeah. You know, (laughs) and there was this really funny interview where they had him talking to this guy and they had the nun monster from the second conjuring come in and he crawled up onto his seat and was trying to get away. You know, it was was great. Um, And you could tell that he's genuinely afraid of things, which is why he's so good at making uh, horror films because he understands fear yeah but, um but yeah actually i actually feel like these guys probably watch horror movies and are never afraid yeah you know? i think so I think and that's why accurate. like when they make a horror movie they don't know how to make other people afraid um, yeah because yeah, yeah if you're thinking like i think if you know if you get scared by you know out of the what six horror movies that come out a year there's probably more than that but if you get scared at all of them you know if like a standard jump scare gets you all the time you know yeah could you make a horror movie like you have to like you have to be like this is why that one guy we keep talking about what is his name ari aster why Mm -hmm. i almost say you know there's something evil about this guy and i mean (laughs) that as a compliment okay yeah uh because you have to be so perverse in your thinking to make something that legitimately disturbing you know, sure. you know, try to combine comedy with that. It's a little hard. And, you know, like you said, even with Joss Whedon, I haven't seen that, but you have to almost do something more like suspense or you have to lean into gore. I feel like this movie, ready or not, leaned into gore. Like the yeah, real, definitely. the only moment that's like really gets you going is her falling into the well and then having to climb up and then her hand going on the See, nail, I, that, you know? that didn't even really get me either because like... I they like did the same thing where they just like showed the nail at the beginning and I'm like well that's where her hands going yeah <laughs> no yeah you know it but it's still yeah, yeah. even just like, it's just the yeah, gore effect of like yeah seeing you kind of like you're, you're, yeah you just you know you have that reaction <laughs> and not only that uh, that was done in a quiet place uh, so much better <laughs> oh yeah 100 percent that actually is a perfect example of how to do horror well 
Yeah. Um, Quiet Place is amazing. And one of my biggest disappointments in 2020 is the fact that it has not come out yet. And it was supposed to by now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The sequel. I mean, to be fair, though, I'd rather see it in theaters. Yeah. No, I agree. I wanted to wait for theaters, but I would yeah. like to just see it by now. Um, And uh, what I would say is, you know, there are good jokes in this movie, ready or not. Um, oh, yeah. I particularly like the fact that three maids look identical to each other and each get massacred <laughs> accidentally. Right. Uh, you know, the coked up sister, the drugged up sister shoots two of these maids by accident yeah. thinking it's the bride. And then the other one gets crushed in an elevator. Yeah. I was kind of hoping the coked out sister would kill all three. So it would be at least like a trope. Yeah. You know, kind of like a who killed Kenny thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like the third one's hiding in the elevator. They're killing all of us. I don't know why. It's you. <laughs> Right. She starts yelling from the family. Yeah, that was pretty right, good. Right. And then the ending joke was pretty good in terms of the double bluff with them blowing up at the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, the horror is pretty light, uh, pretty predictable. If you laugh easily, I think you'd enjoy it, you know. Mm-hmm. But I would say it's better than, you know, I was thinking recently about this concept of the uh, the uh, the mid-2000s comedy. You know, like uh, the types of comedies that were being made in the 2000s and like the early 2000s. Yeah, the DVD you know? era comedies. Yeah, like yeah. Due Date and Hangover. You know, like how Hangover essentially redefined comedy. There's like brief- before Hangover and after Hangover. Sure. And Hangover is good and it's fun. But like everything after Hangover was trying to be Hangover to some degree. You know, yeah. you have like horrible bosser- bosses. You have Due Date made by the guy who did Hangover and you have all these other ones. Mm-hmm. And uh I was just thinking about how much I hate that type of comedy. (laughs) And so I actually, even though this one is not, you know, I don't laugh at all the jokes in this one. I do find it refreshing uh, whenever there's a comedy that's unique, you know, um, the art of self-defense, you know, I think of that one as well. That was also my best of 2019 list as a a great sort of dark comedy that uh, isn't following in the the footsteps of hangover, you know, the, the raunchy slapstick type comedies. Um, Yeah. But yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. James Wan, man. What? James Wan. You have me thinking about conjuring now. Oh yeah. No, I, I, I think he's brilliant. Honestly. Like I think, I don't know. I, I think if you gave him, because I, I think his brilliance lies in horror. Right. Um, and I felt like when he was doing like action or something in, uh, you know, the thing that I liked about uh, Aquaman, though, even though the action wasn't super exciting, the action was very stylistic, right? So you saw that he made a very distinct choice um, in how he wanted to show everything, right? And it actually kind of felt like uh, uh, Kingsman a little bit, but a little less uh, stylized. Hmm. Um, but, you know, where where the camera kind of follows the momentum, but uh, not from behind the character, but from like the edge of the weapon. Yeah, the camera is <laughs> you know, whipping. Yeah. Right, right. Um, where like I, I felt like that was what was being done in here, and I kind of liked the idea of or how he decided to use wides and such in the action. But um, yeah, it didn't really feel like a like it felt like he. I, I think watching Aquaman, I kind of felt like James Wan didn't respect uh, superhero movies, which is kind of funny because I kind of think of him as a genre director, anyways yeah you know so i'm like why why are you coming in here and like you know treating this like a camp project but treating the conjuring like your baby you know (laughs) sure um which that could have also been a a matter of you know producers wanting to get their way with things and 
you know yeah it's interesting you know you, you know those movies they're so controlled i i read an article that said that james wan um contacted Zack snyder uh, oh yeah in terms of uh to get his opinion on the cut and this was like apparently like really not allowed and he had to sort of like sneak it past the studio really? because the studio oh was like on the outs with snyder at the moment because um you know they had recut his justice league movie oh um, right under the direction of joss whedon you know so yeah, interesting man, I, I, that's why you need to do ready or not initially <laughs> when you start making films yeah, because yeah. if you start with a horror movie the cool thing about horror movies for the director is the complete and total creative control aspect of it you know sure. because it's a horror movie they're expecting you to do outlandish shit they're expecting crazy shit they're expecting disturbing shit, well, and since it's shit not that, that would be money, off they don't yeah and it's also if it's off-putting to the audience great that's the point right so right right well, and, and since it's not that much money in terms of, I mean, it's still like, you know, 10, 10 to 30 million, but. Uh, Some of them are really cheaper. Like the Blumhouse movies are, a lot of them are made for like three or five million. You know? Right, right. But I, the whole point is like, you know, it's not your uh, $250 million Avatar movie. Right. Yeah. Like exactly. this is, like this is somewhere where they're just like, you do what you want. It's a horror movie. It'll make money. Exactly. You know? Um there's not as much fear controlling it, which is good, usually. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, I really th- think it would have been cool to see James Wan do a dr- direct a film like this and um, return to horror. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, th- I think that he should honestly stay in horror, but I kind of want to see him like do uh, uh, deeper films. Uh, using the horror genre do so he should do like a gothic romance that's what he should do yeah something, something like, like that, that like where romance. he could explore other genres while maintaining the horror genre uh because I yeah think, like that would be some like i mean if you, if you think about the conjuring like that's one of the scariest movies but if it's like one of the most like good-hearted horror movies ever too yeah it's a very good message you know? right is the the conjuring is the one that uh the guy from alamance in it right and uh yeah, yeah, Vera yeah. Farmiga as well, and they yeah they have the uh, the spinoff of the doll now. All, the, all yeah. those movies. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. he's not. I really he's like only these a movies. On those, but these are the they ha- it follows that same classic thing about horror that I like that Ari Aster sort of inverts and why I feel disturbed by his movies. Yeah, which is you know in The Conjuring there's like a clear good and there's a clear evil and good triumphs over evil. You know, right? But uh, that doesn't happen, and uh, there, there's like this new wave of horror movies. Uh, where people are beginning to question that. And I'm not, I'm not opposed to people experimenting with the genre, but I, that's one of the things I really liked about horror as a genre. Whereas now people are like, what if we don't do that? What if we flip <laughs> it on its head? You know? And it's like, mm, yeah, it's like, I have don't you know. seen the antichrist? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, but yeah, no, there's so like, there's so many similarities to me between uh, horror films, superhero films, movies romance films and like kids movies um yeah and i i think generally it's that like i mean if you even if you look at this movie the insight's fairly simple right yeah um and it's i I feel like it's almost i mean in a lot of kids movies and such i I shouldn't lump kids movies in there because that's not really a genre that's just like an age range yeah um but yeah, having having a having a more simple insight laid onto genre tropes just kind of it kind of feels like uh, 
how do I wear this? You know, you know how when like uh, people criticize superhero movies and they say that it it's kind of just like a roller coaster or something, and it's purely sure. made for entertainment. You know, everything's there to get a reaction out of you. Like, I, I yeah. think that's the criticism for all genre film. You know, pretty much, right? Um, yeah, I don't necessarily see anything wrong with that. Um, yeah, I don't get why that excludes it from being cinema. I can understand someone not liking those movies and I'm not going to hold that against them. Right. But I don't understand, you know, it's the Scorsese thing, which, you know, props to Scorsese. He's the master and I should just sit down and listen, but I don't get why an entire section of movies is all of a sudden not considered cinema, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a movie, it's a, it's a theme park ride, but it's not cinema. It it makes no sense to me how you make that delineation other than your taste. Well, you and, and the problem is and, when you when you exclude an entire genre from your uh, watch list, right? Um, yeah. You miss things and you miss great things, right? You miss The Conjuring. You miss The uh, Winter Soldier, right? You miss the Dark Knight trilogy. Right, I know, exactly. You know, like show that to anyone, you know. How can that not be considered cinema? It's just crazy to me. Yeah, and... You know, and I also, when I watched this movie initially, I went out and had beers with a friend, with friends, and I brought up this movie. They were film people. And I now, I brought up the point that this this film had a really cool message. And I was like, it's really cool that this genre film has like this really cool critique of like the American ruling class. And the uh, the guy, you know, I like this guy a lot, but he sort of uh, uh, sort of dismissed it. He almost sort of like rolled his eyes, frankly. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I get it's a genre film, but it's like in the same way as, you know, George A. Romero or John Carpenter and They Live have a message. You know, it's not going to be like Terrence Malick, you know, (laughs) making a film about the mysteries of life, you know, but like it has a good, cool message and it exemplifies it and it gets it across. And it's nice to see that. Uh, But there is this there is that sort of dismissal of uh, anything that's not like. uh, trying to you know go to that level almost well see i think that's that's a like wrong think almost right because um the people that think that way often think like oh this is like i've seen this message somewhere else before or i already understand this message you know and i think those kind of people just they believe the films were made for them specifically right Hmm. and i i always say like well someone else this is the first time they've seen this message right yeah. Like to some, like that, that's why we shouldn't be c- considering whether it's the first time or the second time you've heard this message. You should be considering how well has the message been told here. Yeah. Right. Judgment should be qualitative. R- right. Right. It, it should all be all be based on the director's intention. Right. Yeah. And if, if you look at a film like this. Right. I mean, I think there's an argument to be made here that like there could have been a lot more done with a better like like we were saying, if James Wan was in charge of this. Right. We would have seen a very yeah. different film. And I, I personally think that it probably would have been better. But true. I, I think that's like a valid criticism. But coming in here and saying that the message was too simple, you know, like. Who who cares? Right. Did they do it well? <laughs> yeah. Or you know? like just like, you know, holding up your nose at the idea that a genre film can do a message at all or do, do a message well, you know, and that, that it could be a serious message and it could actually make an impact you know yeah. the fact that it doesn't need to be you know uh any of these other films you know like uncut gems or something in order to have you know a message that's worth listening to well i think that's just pure vanity right where like they they they're just associating the uh 
the obvious uh, complexity of a film with their identity because they want to be viewed as complex. That's true. Right. Um, and they're not willing to look at something like this and see its simple message and see that it was actually told fairly well. Right. Yeah. And say, Hey, like, good job guys. Like kudos, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. But yeah, no, it, it's, it's just elitism. Honestly, that's pretty much which is funny. Uh, ironic. <laughs> in terms of this film but uh yeah you should have brought that up yeah yeah no no i mean i mean after i sort of explained myself a little bit i mean he he let up so okay, okay. wasn't yeah. a big deal uh i'm not gonna hold it against him but i i do i do find that interesting that that's out there and you know like what you were saying like even if you had listened to uh, even if you had watched a movie with a similar message beforehand, the idea that the message can't be told in a slightly different way is sort of absurd, you know? Yeah. Or like, even just um, again. Right. Yeah, exactly. But I even think of like something like philosophy, you know, like I'm a big fan of philosophy. It's a hobby of mine. And, you know, compare two separate arguments. They sort of could be the same, you know, like you take Plato's argument that things are based in sort of these abstract, uh, heavenly forms. Right. And so, uh, Therefore, reality is sort of based in these abstractions. And then you take like Descartes' argument that reality can be uh, proven through the use of abstractions in your own mind. I think, therefore, I am, you know, and essentially these abstractions yeah. in your mind boil down to mathematics. Well, they're sort of the same argument one way, but they're also two separate arguments. Because yeah, it's like looking different... at the same thing from different angles. Exactly. Um, and so like you can you can therefore make qualitative judgments between the two things and it's more interesting. And, you know, if you yourself make your your own thought process as simple as well. Oh, a critique of American ruling class. Well, there's a lot of movies that critique the American ruling class, maybe not calling them like devil worshipers, you know, some mm -hmm. do, but like all the movies, you know, I think of like a big short or something, you know, all those movies or as well. even, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, true detective season one. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that's very, very similar to this film in terms of yeah. uh, message. Yeah, um, very much, but, and and the thing is, like, I would say True Detective obviously did a much better job, but you have to also consider the format, how long it was, uh, and who the audience is, right? Like, I feel like the, you know, I don't know, like 16, 17-year-olds getting out of high school and going out to watch a film together, you know? Yeah. Like, they're not going, they're not, like, super jazzed about going home and watching true detective with all their friends right yeah that's true um and just because true detective did this like a similar message in a you know profoundly uh incredible way right um doesn't mean that other people don't need to see the message in a different way right yeah or even for the first time right um yeah. and i think this is going to reach a much broader audience it might not hit quite as hard but you know uh, yeah no i definitely agree you know you have to take that in mind you know that right. this is definitely for that like 15 to 25 year old age range right and it's not meant uh you know it's not you know it's not eyes wide shut which is like like uh yeah you know, exactly. 30s 40s you know yeah <laughs> middle age sort of audience so yeah exactly you have to you have, you have to make the you know, it's all about being qualitative. We even started our first episode. I talked about how I don't like uh, quantitative critiques yeah, or like measurements of films, you know, quantitatively. 
And that's, and that's because you lose all of this in, in many ways. You lose the uniqueness of each film uh, and yep. each aspect of the film. And you have to measure all these things. You have to measure the film by what the director attempted to do. Now, you can also talk and quite interesting about what you would have done. But yeah. uh, you should judge the film ultimately by what what's it, its attempted goal was. You know. Well, I, th- I think you should never lose sight of that, even if you're talking about what you would have done. Right. Um, yeah. I, I think... Um, like like for example uh when we when we were talking about um Ari Aster's films we we weren't ever saying like hey we would have done this differently because honestly like he we accomplished his it. goal <laughs> exactly with flying colors right um yeah we just wouldn't have done it um <laughs> but when we look at something like this right when when I'm talking about um like how James Wan probably could have done the same film better I'm just like I'm really coming in here saying like what uh these two guys uh Gillette and something else uh, yeah Matt Olpen and okay. Tyler Gillette yeah yeah those two they tried to make this film um and i'd say succeeded right yeah it's a good um, film yeah yeah but um there was a lot of room for growth and i think that um a more experienced horror director or just like a more innovative horror director could have done something incredible with it. Um, I definitely agree. But yeah, no, I think it's always important to consider what the director's intentions were. And if you're going to say, Hey, I would have done this differently, make sure that it lines up with the original intentions because if they don't, you know, why the fuck you're just talking about making a different film? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're not, you're not even making the same film anymore. Yeah. Um, absolutely but yeah well i would say uh another interesting thing about this film is that it has a uh, two writers on it i don't know in what degree if they work together or if one rewrote the other but one of them is a first-time writer so i'm imagining he might have sold the actual script and his names are christopher murray or murphy hmm, okay and then you have another guy uh guy busick and he's also writing the script for the new Scream movie. And he apparently did one horror script before this called Urge. Cool. Um, so there's a lot of new time people on this and or like people that are very new still. And it's very encouraging, you know, in terms of, you know, for all we've said, we have said this is a good movie. I've said it's a very good movie. I would be very happy if this is my first movie, you know, this is yeah, definitely or one of my first movies. Even, you know, this is a, this is a really good piece of filmmaking. It's enjoyable. I don't think most people you'd have to have an issue with horror in the first place to, or gore for that matter, to have really an issue with the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like an enjoyable watch. You're not going to regret watching it. So yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we'll end it there, man. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. We'll see you guys next week. All right. See you guys. Hey everyone. Quaid here. While I was editing the episode, I was listening to interviews of the two directors behind ready or not. And I came across a couple of clips you guys might want to listen to. I mean, I th- look, we were drawn to it because of all of those reasons. That it wasn't just one, one thing. It was a mix of things, and it was a mix of everything that we love about seeing movies in a theater. But also, it, there was something so... Um, there was, there, it has this replay value, this, this idea that I mean, when we finished reading the script for the first time, we immediately went back and started reading it again. There was just so much happening in it. It was, it was funny, and it was dramatic, and... There were so many weird, awesome set pieces that we hadn't that we hadn't seen before, and um, it was uh, it was sort of the culmination of everything that we love about about good good movies, and the fact that it all coexisted in a single 
a single story was certainly just a feat of, of writing. Um, the script is, it was incredible, and the development that Jamie and Tripp, the producers, did on it was just, um, you know, really, really <laughs> un unbelievably great. I mean, by the time we read it, it, so much of what's great about the tone of the movie was, was, um, was present in, in that first draft. And so it was a really easy thing to, uh, to fall in love with. It was an easy thing to send out to cast. We felt so so proud to to submit it to people because it was um, it was it, it, there was just something so undeniable about about it on the page. You know, I mean, the movie hopefully speaks for itself on some level, and that's that is a lot of it. It's it's the class, it's the entitlement, and it's the what you learn from your family. It's that scene between you two that it, that kind of sums it up. I mean, we made the joke that like, oh, that movie is like the keystone to the movie where you go or that scene where it's like, oh yeah, your family said it was okay. So you go with it. And, and, and for us, it was, it was one of the things that was exciting in the script is that we get to have all this batshit crazy stuff and then also all of this very real, very, very grounded stuff. And I mean, I know the three of us feel very lucky for all of the cast. Where it was like you guys were able to really ground all of that and make it believable so that hopefully then it becomes relatable for everybody else.